At North Point Community Church, we are passionate about helping our community move toward a life fully devoted to Jesus. And we hope this message helps you do that. Thank you for tuning in. Hey, good morning. Welcome. Uh, if you're watching online, welcome. Um, one of the things that they tell you in public speaking is never to acknowledge mistakes. You know, don't draw attention to things that you don't need to draw attention to. And so all morning I've thought, I don't know whether to say something or not. Got out of the car this morning, Jake had parked right beside me, and I said, Jake, do I need to acknowledge the Band-Aid on my head? And he said, certainly, yes, you do. I still wasn't convinced, and um, before the service, I said to them in back, I said, hey, can you see the Band-Aid on my head um, through the camera? Or back in the booth, the people who are in the back, does it just look like a smudge or whatever? And they said, is there a good story? And um, <clears throat> I said, well, there's a stupid story. And he said, oh, you have to tell it. So, uh, so here's the deal. Yesterday morning, um, I reached down to get a pop can in the garage to throw it in the recycling stuff. There were two um, shelves that were there that were kind of supported in that general vicinity. They fell down and hit right in the center of my forehead and took off most of the layers of skin right there. So if I don't have a Band-Aid on, it looks like I'm a Cyclops, right? There's, there's this big divot in the middle of my forehead that you'll probably get to see for the next several months. So um, today it's in a Band-Aid. Sorry to do that. If you're watching online, you're thinking, do I really want to watch this guy, listen to this guy speak from God's word or not? Um, certainly there are people with more balance and more, uh, anyway, here we go. Um, there are some famous names in American history that, that we all know, right? Yeah, George Washington, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, uh, more recent presidents, uh, John Kennedy, Ronald Reagan, I think famous people. There are some other names in American history that are probably not as famous, but you may recognize some of these names. Jonathan Pollard, Larry Wu, Robert Hansen, Aldrich Ames. This, those second set of names did incredible harm to the United States, some of which still has not been exposed. We know what the country is like because of the, the first set of names, but how would our country be different if those last set of people who worked as spies for foreign governments had never been a part of the United States government? If you enjoy studying famous spies, people who betrayed the US, there is a nagging question, I think, about each of them. Why would they do it and how did they sneak in? How did they find a place in our government where they could undercut the authority of our government? How could we not know that they were living such a duplicitous life, in many cases, for decades? In each case, at some point in time, an individual or a group of individuals discovered that these people were serving as spies, that they were undercutting the mission of the United States, um, and ultimately they were exposed. The writer of our sticky note today um, tracks that same thought. He experienced some of that same sense of recognizing that all of a sudden in the church, there were people who were subverting the mission of the church, who were messing it up, and who had to be exposed. The writer had to respond. He had to sound a warning. 
he and his only brother, or, or he and one of his brothers, um, are the only writers in the New Testament who only wrote one letter teaching us what it looks like, how to follow uh, Jesus, how to be a disciple of Jesus. His name is Jude, and Jude's sticky note, his short letter that we've broken down into one chapter and 20, 25 verses is where we're going to go this morning. So take out your Bibles, take out the app, and uh, this is one of those chapters, that one of those books that you probably will have a lot of questions about. Feel free to use that that, um, that tag at the bottom of the message notes in the app to send questions. Uh, we're having a lot of fun talking about them. And then, then watch on Tuesday to see, uh, to see what the answers to those questions are. We'll do our very best. I'm gonna jump right into Jude 1. And you'll see the connection that's there to Alder James, Robert Hansen, and, and those guys uh, who served the spies in the U.S. government. Uh, verse 1. This letter is from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ, and a brother of James. Uh, pause just for a second. This is not Judas Iscariot, the, the disciple that betrayed Jesus. It's not James, the brother of John, James and John, the fisherman, um, because that James was the first disciple who was martyred. Um, but Mark 6.3 describes four half-brothers of Jesus, um, including James and Judas, or Jude is, is what you'll find in, in uh, Mark 6.3. Galatians, in uh, Galatians 1.19, Paul talks about going to see James, not the brother of John, but James, the half-brother of Jesus, to talk to him he, because he was a leader in the church in Jerusalem. Jude, get this. When you look at that passage, Jude is so humble about his role that he says, hey, I'm, I'm a brother of James. He's a half-brother of Jesus. Mary was his mother. Joseph was his father. God was Jesus' father. That's why he's a half-brother. But he describes himself as the brother of James and a bondservant of Jesus. What, what an example of humility for us, for someone who could say, yeah, Jesus was my big brother. Jesus was my big brother. Doesn't say that at all. Uh, the, the word servant that's there, a bondservant of Christ, it describes someone not who is captured and enslaved, but someone who has been a slave, who has been freed from that slavery and willingly chooses um, to stay with their master, to, to have their ear pierced in the Old Testament and to say, I'm gonna be a bondservant. I'm gonna stay with this person even though they no longer own me as property. Here's the opening challenge, I think, in just the first verse of, of the book of Jude. Um, it's this, how, how humble are you? How, how much do you say, oh, this is who I am. This is what I can do. Jude says, man, I'm a brother of James. That lets you know who I am. And I'm a bondservant of Jesus. I think the humility that's there is so, so powerful. He goes on and says, I'm writing to all who have been called by God the Father, who loves you and keeps you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. This letter was written by Jude uh, to fellow Christians. It's probably a letter that was designed to be passed around among churches. Um, and nothing in this short letter, in these 25 verses, this sticky note, nothing gives a clue as to the time frame. So it was probably written somewhere between 65 and 80 AD. We don't, we don't really know much beyond that. Verse two, may God give you more and more mercy, peace, and love. 
If you were here last week and we looked at the beginning of 3 John or uh, the week before in 2 John, you'll remember that John writes his letters and says grace and mercy and peace to start those letters. Jude says, may God give you more mercy, peace, and love. What, what a great way to start the letter. Dear friends, I have been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share, but now I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. Jude wanted to write a certain kind of letter. He wanted to write a letter that would be a letter of encouragement that would talk about how great it is to experience the salvation that we have through Jesus. He wanted to write about the glory of God, but he said, something's come up and I've got to take a stand. I've, I'm compelled to write. If you're looking at a new internet, a new international translation, new international version, it says that I'm compelled to write. What, he's, what, James, what Jude is saying is that this is really, really important. I've got to draw your attention to it. What's he compelled to write? What's the, what's the urgency that's there? Defend the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Defend the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints of God. Um, fight for the true historic gospel that's been given to God's people. Um, just, just a thought that's there as, as you really dive in and look at the words that are there in Jude. The faith that we have was once for all delivered to the saints. It's not an ongoing revelation. It gets lived out in our lives day by day. But it's the kind of thing that it was captured, it was, it was finished in the work of Jesus on the cross. Um, it, stuff doesn't keep happening that keeps changing the gospel that we understand. It all centered on Jesus. Verse four, I say this because some ungodly people, have, here's the reason why he's writing this letter. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they, for they have denied our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude says, bad guys have entered into your church. They've wormed their way in. Um, the New International Version says that they've secretly slipped in among you. Like Aldrich Ames, like Robert Hansen, like Larry Wu, like Jonathan Pollard, they've become people who are trusted in your community of believers, but they don't share the mission or the values or the heart of the organization. They were, these people who had permeated the church were deceivers and destroyers. Churches often face lots of adversity from the outside, people who attack the churches, but that doesn't destroy the church, that makes the church even stronger. Whenever there has been persecution of the church, persecution of the people of God, it's made the church stronger. But churches are destroyed from within the church, from people who are part of the body, that, that uh, subvert the mission, that lose track of what it means to know and follow Jesus. Jude says, these are ungodly people. These, gods, these guys that Jude is writing about, they don't sell secrets to foreign governments, but they turn grace into a get out of jail free card to do whatever, what, whatever immoral thing that they want. Um, 
New International says, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. Don't miss this. The, the, in the original language, Judah's talking about perverse things. The, the word that's in the King James is, is translated, uh, that's there is translated licentiousness. That's not a word that we use very often, but it means disregarding any moral or sexual restraints. Licentiousness is not a word that we use in the U.S. right now because we have become a licentious culture, a culture without any kind of sexual restraints. Jude says, they deny Jesus is sovereign. They deny that he's all-powerful. They deny that he's the Lord, that he's in charge of the universe. And Jude goes on to say then in verse 5, so I want to remind you, though you already know these things, that Jesus first rescued the, the nation of Israel from Egypt, but later he destroyed those who did not remain faithful. And I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for the great day of judgment. Don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. Jude says, you know this already, but you've got to be reminded the God who saves you, who's, uh, who allows you to experience salvation, is also the God who destroys those who violate his, his will, who, who, dis, who destroy his, um, con, his, uh, his, uh, what he's created. He condemns those. He punishes those who don't believe. Don't miss this because, uh, again, I feel like it, it's, my, it's my job to warn us. We live in a culture that focuses on the goodness and the, and the, and the, the wonder, the mercy and the grace of God. And that's a part of his nature. But there can be no mercy and grace without the judgment of God. There can't be salvation without condemnation. You can't have one without the other. And Jude says, look, this is really, really important that you get this, that you understand that there's a lot at stake in what's going on. And he, and he gives three examples. The first example he gives is of the nation of Israel that they come out of slavery in Egypt, that God saved them from Egypt, saved them from, from the slavery of Egypt, saved them from the slavery of building with the bricks and everything that happened. And he took them to the edge of the promised land. And when they didn't listen to the two spies who had faith, to Joshua and Caleb, when they listened to the 10 who gave a bad report about how big the men were, how strong, how great the area was, but how strong the adversaries were, God let them perish in the wilderness. For 40 years, all of those people who listened to the 10 spies and failed to listen to the two spies who trusted God they died in the wilderness. That's the first example. The second example that Jude gives is angels that, that fell from heaven, that sided with Lucifer, that have been bound since that time and are waiting for eternal judgment. They've been stuck there. Um, Jude says, understand that the stakes are high. The third example, that there will be, there will be destruction. The, the third example is the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. The people who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah were consumed by sexual immorality and perversion. 
there's a very specific reference to what Jude had written earlier in verse three uh, in that concept of exchanging grace, the grace of God for the freedom for licentiousness to do whatever you want sexually. Um, let, me, let me just pause for a second and let you know because when we're, we're, we're gonna dive into just a, a little closer look at Sodom and Gomorrah here in just a second. Um, what Sodom was known for was homosexuality. We've got a series that, that starts next week that's about God's design for, um, for how we're created. Our, his design for us as men, his design for us as women, his design for relationships, his design for gender, all that stuff is gonna happen over the next four or five weeks. And I hope that you'll be here for that because it really kind of fits in with this message from Jude. Here's the, here's the big overview. If you wanna go back in your Bible or, or, or cross over in your app to Genesis 19, you can just kind of scan down through there. Let me give you the big picture of what happened in Genesis 19 with Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham is called by God to go to a new country. He does that. His nephew Lot comes. Lot settles in the city of, of Sodom. Um, Abraham takes uh, the, the mountains and he lives with, with, with his people there. Um, God, uh, God comes to tell Abraham that he sees what's going on in Sodom, that, that it's full, so full of corruption, of sexual sin, that he's going to destroy it. Lot's living there, Abraham's nephew, and Abraham pleads with God and says, oh man, don't, don't destroy that city, that's, that's where my nephew lives, who's part of my family. And, and if you know the Old Testament, you know that then there is this great bargaining uh, time that happens between Abraham and God, where Abraham says, God, if there's 50 righteous people in Sodom, will you save it? And God says, you know what, yeah, I will. And then Abraham says, how about 45? Um, and God says, you know what, for 45 people, I'll, I'll save it. He says, Okay, how about for 40? And God says, yeah, if there are 40 righteous people in the entire city of, of Sodom, thousands of people there, tens of thousands of people there, um, I'll save it. Uh, God says, yeah, 40, 30, 20, 10 is where they end up. If, there's 10, if there are 10 righteous people, I'll save the city. And God says, yeah, I will. So that ends that bargaining process and two of God's messengers, two angels go into Sodom and they seek out the city, and they decide that they're gonna sleep in the middle of the city. And Lot says, Lot recognizes how perverse the city is, and he says, you can't do that, you're gonna, you're gonna get captured and destroyed. Lot brings him to his house, and, and men come from all over the city to come, and, and they say to Lot, give us those two guys that have just come, because they're so pure, they're, they look so good, we want to rape those men. And, um, and Lot says, uh, no, you can't do that. They're messengers from God. And they say, we're gonna take them by force. And Lot says, instead, how about if I give you my two daughters who are virgins, who've never slept with man, and you can have them instead. You can do whatever you want to them. Good dad, right? Um, it's a messed up city. Um, and, and, and the messengers from God end up blinding the people of the city, and they spend the night. So the next morning, the, the angels from God, Lot, his wife, his two daughters, and their two um, fiancés, the, the men that they're gonna marry, leave the city. Um, the, if you think about it, if you think about what that looked like, they had to not be very happy, right? That little group of people, they had to not be very happy. We know that Lot's wife 
didn't really want to leave because she turns around, looks at the city, disobeys God, and, and she uh, gets turned into a pillar of salt as a result of that. Um, we know that Lot's daughters, at least in my mind, Lot's daughters are probably not real happy to be on this journey either because their dad was just willing to allow them to be torn apart by a group, by a, a mob of men. I gotta believe that Lot's daughters, fiancés, are not real sure that they're happy to be there as well because of their father-in-law's choices and, and just trying to make sense of this. None of them really believe that God was going to do anything. Lot is the only one who believes that God is really going to destroy the city. Um, and he doesn't want to go to where the angels tell him to go. Angels say, go hide in the mountains. And Lot says, oh, no, there's this other little city. Can I, can I stay there? And the angels say, yeah, okay, go ahead and go there, but get there really quickly because we can't destroy the city until you're there safely. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah have become a common expression in our culture. People, if you talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, people, people know, oh yeah, that was a really evil place that God supposedly destroyed. Um, but most people, I think, that don't believe the Bible just kind of blow it off as fiction. In the October 4th edition of Newsweek, just a few weeks ago, there was an article about a peer-reviewed paper in Nature Scientific Reports, which is a magazine that's a highly respected science magazine. The paper in uh, Nature Scientific Reports describes archaeological evidence for the cataclysmic destruction of a middle, age, a middle Bronze Age city north of the Dead Sea. The study that they did in, of this area represented years of research and technical, technical analysis by 21 scientists from an archaeological dig that began in 2006. The location of the dig was based on what the Bible said about where the city of Sodom would be. As they dug down in this archaeological dig and reached the level of strata to about 1650 BC, which is about the time of the destruction of Sodom, they uncovered a five-foot layer of soot. Randomly scattered throughout the vast destruction matrix were bits of melted brick, burned fragments of human bones, and other debris that didn't make any sense. A volcano or fire or earthquake could not have produced what the scientists found. The lead archaeologist, Dr. Stephen Collins, discovered the shard of a jar that day that opened up a new level of interest in this area. As a ceramic expert, he knew instantly that it was from 1700 BC. On one side of it, it had a strange glassy green glaze. The technology to intentionally produce something like that would not exist for another 2400 years. The scientists, the archeologists were baffled. How did that get to be in that place? A lab in New Mexico concluded that the pottery had been melted by super intense heat, lasting a very short period of time. The archeologists and scientists had to, had to determine what could produce that. There was another perplexing fact that they had to consider. The, though the site was inhabited for millennia before the cataclysm, immediately afterward, there was a gap of 700 years before human but before humans settled there again. This was a site with unmatched natural resources and strategic military advantages. 
Why would it sit empty for 700 years? It was unprecedented. What the scientists came to believe based on the evidence was that there was a cosmic airburst impact event, that's in quotes, that occurred with a power greater, greater than 1,000 Hiroshima atomic bombs. They believe that this event generated winds of 700 miles an hour. A, a hurricane, a tornado that's cat five, is about 200 miles an hour, 700 miles an hour. They believe that the surviving fragments they found indicate that for 25 seconds, the temperature there in that area was roughly 3,500 degrees, hot enough to melt stainless steel and titanium. The conclusion of the paper was that a meteor entered our atmosphere and burst before hitting ground, burning at a temperature of somewhere around 18,000 degrees Fahrenheit above the ground. This is a quote from Newsweek from October 4th. The Nature Scientific Report article concludes explicitly what happened in 1700 BC bears inescapable parallels to what the Bible says about Sodom. And indeed, they are startling. One, stones fell from the sky. Two, fire came down from the sky. Three, thick smoke rose from the fires. Four, a major city was devastated. Five, city inhabitants were killed. And six, area crops were destroyed. It even says that what happened may have generated an oral tradition that became the source of the written story of the, bibli of the biblical Sodom in Genesis. Do you understand what they said? They said that what happened may have created the story of Sodom that's found in the Bible. That a prestigious journal of medicine, uh, that a prestigious journal of science would admit these things should at least make skeptics sit up and take notice. Few people, whether religious believers or scientific or skeptical scientists, ever dreamt such a thing was possible. That's the end of the quote from Newsweek. Jude says, don't miss this. Jude says that the God who saves beautifully, wonderfully, the God that we sang about in our time of worship is also the God who destroys and his destruction is beyond anything that we can comprehend. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. That's what Jude wrote. Do you understand why Jude felt compelled to write about these people who had wormed their way into the body of Christ? Jude goes on, verse eight. In the same way, these people who claim authority from their dreams live immoral lives, defy authority. They scoff at supernatural beings. But even Michael, one of the mightiest of the angels, did not dare accuse the devil of blasphemy, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. This took place when Michael was arguing with the devil about Moses' body. But these people scoff at things that they, that they do not understand. Like unthinking animals, they do whatever their instincts tell them. And so they bring about their own destruction. Jude says, what are these people like? They live immoral lives. They pollute their own bodies, is, is uh, one translation. They defy or they reject authority. They scoff at and heap abuse on celestial beings, on God and angels. They scoff at things that they don't understand. The things that they do understand, Jude says, they're going to destroy them naturally. The evil, don't miss this. Jude says that the evil in the church 
was not from false teaching, but it was from the way that they were living their lives. The evil in the church was from their lifestyle, not from false teaching. Um, now, if you read down through that, you, you say, wait, what's the deal about Michael fighting for the body of Moses? That's a reference from the book of Enoch. We'll talk more about that in just a second. Um, Moses died after seeing the promised land, but wasn't able to enter it. The book of Enoch says that the devil tried to steal Moses' body, but the archangel Michael fought him off. And in the midst of the battle, Michael still showed respect for this fallen angel. He didn't assume that he had the right to, to personally rebuke him. So he called on God to rebuke him in the process. Verse 11, what sorrow awaits them? For they follow in the footsteps of Cain who killed his brother. Like Balaam, they deceive people for money. And like Korah, they perish for their rebellion. Three more examples that Jude gives to talk about the judgment of God and the, and the wrong direction that people have gone. He talks about the way of Cain. Um, I wish I had... I wish I could keep you here for another hour because I'd love to talk about this particular verse for a really long time. Um, the, the short deal with Cain, when you look at Hebrews 11, what it says, Cain offered a sacrifice that wasn't an a, a sacrifice of faith. Somehow God told him, this is what your sacrifice needs to be. He gave a grain sacrifice instead. Um, it wasn't a sacrifice of faith. Balaam's error, Numbers 22, if you wanna go there, man, incredible story. What do you know about Balaam? Um, what's, what's the thing most people talk about? Oh, Balaam's the guy where the donkey talked, right? The, the, the more important thing about Balaam is that Balaam had the ability to speak for God, to bless and curse people. And Balak, who was a king of the Moabites, um, who was afraid of the Jews, came to Balaam and said, man, you've got to curse the, the Israelite nation. And Balaam said, I got to go talk to God. God said, no, you can't curse them. They're my people. Balaam goes to Balak and says, I can't curse him. And, and Balak comes back and says, hey, I've got all this money that I'll give you if you just curse him. And Balaam says, I know what God said, but I'm, let me go back and ask him again. That happens a couple of times until finally God says, fine, you go ahead. You go with Balaam or you go with Balak, but you can only say what I, what I tell you to say. Ultimately, Balaam blesses the nation of Israel and not the Moabites the nation of Israel defeat them. What was the error of Balaam? The money became attractive. Money caused him to, to not listen to God, to not pay attention to what God had already told him. What's the deal with Korah that's listed there? Korah, uh, Korah was one of the people when they were out in the wilderness, uh, when the Israelite nation was out in the wilderness following Moses, that said, Moses, we don't like your leadership. We don't like... Um, we, we don't like the way that you're leading, and so we want a voice, we want to, we want to take over. And they rebelled against authority, and God sent an earthquake that um, swallowed them up and killed Korah and all of his followers. Um, Jude says, verse 11, what sorrow awaits them? Verse 12, when these people eat with you in their fellowship meals, commemorating the Lord's love, that's talking about communion, they're like dangerous reefs that can shipwreck you. They're like shameless shepherds who care only for themselves. They're like clouds blowing over the land without giving any rain. They're like trees in autumn that are doubly dead, for they bear no fruit, have been pulled up by the roots. They're like wild waves of the sea churning up, from, uh, churning up the foam of their shameful deeds. 
They're like wandering stars doomed forever to blackest darkness. These people, Jude says, have no spiritual conscience. They're ashamed to you. They're spiritually dead and their punishment is going to be uh, that they're gonna be cast into eternal darkness, not being able to see anything, to be aware of anything around them. Verse 14, Enoch, who lived in the seventh generation after Adam, prophesied about these people. He said, listen, the Lord is coming with countless thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on the people of the world. He will convict every person of all the ungodly things that they have done and for all the insults that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and complainers living only to satisfy their desires, Jude says. They brag loudly about themselves. They flatter others to get what they want. That quote that's there in those verses is from the book of Enoch. The book of Enoch is not a part of scripture. It was a book that was valued by the Jewish readers in the first century. It contained both theological and historical background for the Jews about who they were and how they would relate to God. Um, it, it's not scripture, but it was considered very valuable. Um, parts of the book of Enoch, interestingly enough, were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, the best comparison I can give you to the book of Enoch, it's kind of like the Federalist, the Federalist Papers in the United States. They're not the Constitution. They're not the direct Declaration of Independence, Independence, but they give all kinds of insight into what the founding fathers were thinking at that point in time. Jude says this. If you look at all that, Jude says, God is going to judge. Don't miss that. God is going to judge. He's the defiant words, ungodly sinners have spoken against him. He's going to judge. Grumblers, he's going to judge. Fault finders, he's going to judge. People who follow their own evil desires. People who boast about themselves. People who flatter others to get ahead. God's going to judge. Verse 17, but you, my dear friends, must remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ predicted. They told you that in the last times there would be scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desires. These people are the ones who are creating divisions among you. They follow their natural instincts because they don't have God's spirit in them. Jude says, the apostles told you that there'd be people like this. These people cause division. They follow their instincts, not the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, but you, dear friends, must build each other up in your most holy faith. Pray in the power of the Holy Spirit and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ who will bring you eternal life. In this way, you will keep yourself safe in God's love. Jude says, you've got to remain faithful. If you don't want to experience that judgment, you've got to remain faithful by building up your faith, by praying in the power of the Holy Spirit, by staying rooted in God's love, and by waiting with expectation for eternity, living now with eternity in mind. That's the call for us. Verse 22, and you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy to still others, but do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives. What's our call to action as disciples of Jesus, we need to play offense in this world. We need to not, not hide together and just play defense and let Satan do his work. We need to play offense. We need to be merciful to people who's, who doubt, 
people whose faith is weak. We, we need to reach out and show them mercy and grace. We need to aggressively pursue others to pull them from their errors. That's talking about evangelism. We need to aggressively pursue people who are gonna be condemned if they don't know Jesus and introduce them to him. We need to do so with caution, with mercy mixed with fear, New International says, recognizing the, the, recognizing the consequences of falling into the same thinking. I, I love that, that concept of doing so with caution, with caution, with mercy mixed with fear. A few weeks ago, uh, Deb and I celebrated our 40th anniversary and went to Glacier National Park. There is a, a trail uh, uh, that you can go on in, in Glacier called the Highline Trail. Um, it, in this section of it, it's about six feet wide with a hundred foot drop over the edge with no rail, um, with a view that if you would look further to the left of the picture, that just goes literally tens of thousands, or not tens of thousands, it goes thousands of feet into a, into a deeper valley. The, um, Deb and I didn't get to hike on this, but the guide that we listened to said the first time that she walked on it, she was so scared because of the, of the fall that she got down on all fours and crawled down this trail. It's a, it's a trail that animals use even when people are there. And you basically have to get right up next to the rock and, and, and stay there so that anyone can pass. That's mercy mixed with fear, right? That's going with caution, recognizing the stakes that are there. Jude, Jude says, but you know what? In the midst of all of this, all of this warning that I give you, there is great news. Verse 24, now all glory to God who is able to keep you from falling away. He's able to keep you from falling and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. All glory to him who is alone, who alone is God, our savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. All glory, majesty, power, and authority are his before all time and in the present and beyond all time. Amen. Don't miss this. The God that we serve, Jesus that we follow, God can keep you from falling. He can present you to himself without fault and with great joy. That's why Jesus came. Through Jesus, that happens. And because of that, God deserves the power and the majesty and the glory and the authority forever. God is worthy. Let me just give you my five big takeaways from, from the book of Jude. One sentence each. Jude's assumption, this is, the, this is my first takeaway from just digesting Jude over the last uh, week or so. Jude's assumption that was that his readers knew the Old Testament. All of his illustrations that come from the Old Testament, Jude just assumed everybody understood all that. We Don't miss this. We have greater access to scripture than any of the people in the first century did. We need to be convicted to be in God's word. Second takeaway for me, how we live matters. It's not enough to think about being a follower of Jesus. We have to live it out. The third thing, in light of those people who have wormed their way into the church, we have to take action to protect the body of Christ. The fourth thing is the importance of getting rid of immoral behavior in our lives, taking a stand against it in the church. We live in a culture that's accepted immoral behavior. 
we may not be able to, uh, to aggressively attack that in culture, but we can aggressively attack it in our lives and in the church. Fifth thing, our response to authority. I think when you read down through the book of Jude, uh, again, one of the things that you'll see over and over again is that the people who had wormed their way into the church um, didn't, didn't want to obey authority. God's authority, earthly authority. Uh, all I can tell you is this. Much like meekness is strength under control, obeying authority is not weakness, but a willing submission of our own control and power because of God, because of who he is. Um, we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm gonna pray in just a second. We're gonna sing. And I just wanna invite you while we sing, if you need to do some business with God, if there's some stuff that's convicted you this morning, feel free to just come down as we sing and pray down here. And um, some people come pray with you. That'll be good. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, I, I feel like right now, boy, um, there's an awful lot in Jude that is just a sharp warning to us that's heavy and that, that makes us um, be introspective, that makes us consider our own lives. And I thank you that he did that, that he felt compelled to write. God, draw us to you, to the righteousness and the holiness of who you are. Help us to live that way and help us to be the church that you have called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.